Hello. Let's get started. Several years ago, we studied the Gospel of Luke in Women's Bible Study, and recently I listened again to a lecture from that study that was given by Sue Lutz. She spoke of those final hours before Jesus hung on the cross, a day when sin was as black as could be. Speaking of those moments, Sue reminded us that what happens on the surface is only part of a deep and eternal story. Second Samuel 12 weighs upon us with that same sort of darkness of sin and light of grace. Sue's words speak to our hearts as we mourn for David, mourn for Bathsheba and all of Israel. What happens on the surface is only part of a deep and eternal story. As we examine God's response to David's sin, find comfort in the familiarity of this pattern. It's a stunning tapestry that the Lord works in the lives of his children. Our God is the one who sends the messenger, the father who pursues, the almighty who uncovers and exposes, the Savior whose unfailing love covers the sin of his repentant children with grace. Our God is the Father who keeps our wandering hearts desperate for him. Throughout chapter 11 last week, Jane captured all the stark action, drama, and heartache of David's very visible fall. Everyone was in motion. Eleven times, people are hastily sent here and there to battle in lust, in anger, scheming, and fear. Joab sends messengers to David. Bathsheba sends messengers to David. David especially sends. He's busy in deception, burying the truth, sending here and there. And God is the one who is silent until the final verse. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Seemingly distant, God waits, seeing the mess, seeing everything. In our story today, we hear God's purposes burst to the surface through the crafty voice of his prophet Nathan through the tragic death of David's tiny son, through the fierce grace of God that will not let David go. Alexander McLaren wrote, God accuses us and condemns us one by one, that he may save us one by one. God sends Yahweh knows David, every detail inside and out, far better than David knows himself. He knows David has shrouded his conscience in darkness. It's time for light to burst through. Waiting is over. We expect punishment and judgment, and certainly that is here. But as Dale Ralph Davis puts it, we have this sense that we have traveled beyond judgment 
into the land of grace. So Yahweh sent Nathan, loved and trusted. It's been a while since Nathan entered the story. The last time was in the glorious chapter 7, when Nathan came to tell of God's promise to be like a father to David, to bless him with an eternal kingdom through David's descendant. Nathan was skillful and wise. He knew better than to come storming in like John the Baptist and confront David. No, God's strategy is the scheming of grace. It's time to stir the king's conscience. And the perfect prescription came in the form of a simple story. Mercy will not let the cover-up continue. This is not Saul, whose hard heart was full of excuses and paltry obedience. God loves David fiercely. The road to repentance and restoration ahead is painful and shattering. God exposes. According to Alistair Begg, Nathan comes one or two years after the incident with Bathsheba. She's now living in David's house, and the child of their first union is a toddler. From the outside, it seems that David's cover-up succeeded. As we study this chapter, we can't move on. Our hearts ache for what is ahead, but it appears that David's conscience sleeps. Nathan begins to tell a story that must have appealed directly to the king's sense of justice. The story follows a familiar format. There were two men in a certain city, much like the stories that Jesus told. Problems like this would have been brought to the king, and David knew the law of Moses backwards and forwards as a just king should. He had a heart for the vulnerable proven by his treatment of Mephibosheth. This is the David who said in one of his Psalms, I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. But unfortunately, God's will does not keep us from wandering. We still want what we want, treasuring our idols in the dark. How far David has fallen, blinded by entitlement and pride. As Joyce Baldwin puts it, Nathan's sword was within an inch of David's conscience before he knew that Nathan had a sword. Reading 2 Samuel 12, 1 through 6. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, there were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and with his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms. And it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. 
but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die, and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing, and because he had no pity. A fascinating story. Did you notice how little we learn of the rich man? We only find out what he had his possessions. Of course, also that he feels entitled to his neighbor's pet lamb, while the poor man's life is full of relationships, children and a family circle and a home. It's easy to identify with this man and appreciate the warmth of his life. Notice in verse three, the treasured land grew up with his children, eats from his morsel, drinks from his cup, and lies in his arms. Familiar words, those. Eats, drink, lie. Uriah's words, his very words, his reasons for not going to his wife while Joab's army was denied the same luxuries far from home. I suppose the words just weren't familiar enough to David as his conscience continues to sleep. We too can listen to the word of God, sharp as it is, and not hear it. For years, God's word can stop at our ears and never enter our hearts. When a traveler comes to the rich man, he doesn't want to waste a single lamb from his own flocks. So without a thought, he took the poor man's precious lamb, has it slaughtered and cooked for dinner. Just as David took Bathsheba from Uriah. David is indignant. His reaction is over the top. Now, he invokes the Lord who lives and explodes. This man should die. As Nathan recounts the tale, we ask, why should the rich man die? I mean, after all, we are talking about a lamb, right? Certainly the penalty from Exodus 22.1 is sufficient. Four lambs for the one stolen. But David, the righteous judge, Outraged by the cruelty of the rich man, delivers the verdict and judges himself. Throughout chapter 11, David moved from impulse to impulse, living blind in his own self-indulgent kingdom. Is David's extreme reaction now somehow tied to his own hidden guilt? He still fails to make the connection, fails to see that this is his story. But God will come after his children. He pursues like the hound of heaven, rips the blanket from our eyes or slowly rolls it back like a scroll. As Ralph Davis puts it, Grace pursues and exposes the sinner in his sin. You may succeed in unfaithfulness, 
but Yahweh will come after you. Not that God's pursuing grace is enjoyable, but what if Yahweh did not pursue? Now reading Second Samuel 12, 7-9. Nathan said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. And I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight. You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. If you, David, could fly into such a rage over a rich man stealing a lamb, how much more will the fury of the living God demand justice for the murder of Uriah and the stealing of his wife Have you forgotten God's overflowing blessings without number? Provision in the past from mountainside intimacy with Yahweh to the halls of power and protection from Saul. You who are now king of a united Israel with wives and children and victories and riches never imagined as a shepherd boy, blessings heaped up and spilling over. At the heart of David's sin is ingratitude. He had no reason to steal and rape another man's wife, to murder Uriah so no one would know. Finally, it dawns on him. His conscience laid bare. Why have you despised the word of the Lord? Remember in chapter 11, how David said to Joab, Do not let this thing be evil in your sight. The gracious God who sent Nathan to shake him awake is the same furious God who is outraged that David would blatantly disregard the law of the Lord, disregard the Almighty himself. Grace is not cheap. Grace is not God being nice. To comprehend the fullness of grace to come, David must face the enormity of his sin and God's rightful anger. And we stand on that same precipice with David and stare into the depths of our sin to fathom, to fathom the gift of grace God offers. The truth is out. Crimes are uncovered. According to the law of Moses, David deserves death. Like the writer of Hebrews 4, David knows God sees it all. Excuses will not do. 
For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Reading verses 10 through 14. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Repentance. David confesses, simple and sincere. His repentance is genuine. He doesn't run or hide behind excuses. He doesn't shift blame, complain, minimize, or complicate like Saul. David knows he is face to face with the living, all-knowing, holy God. What can he do but admit his guilt openly? I have sinned against the Lord. This moment is captured for us in Psalm 51. In David's own words, we hear the confession of his heart. And the desire of the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. And cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. In covenant language, David claims God's steadfast love and tender warmth. He knows that at its foundation, his sin is not against Uriah and Bathsheba. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. He has sinned against the maker of the universe, the one who made man in his image. The one who made Uriah and Bathsheba. The enormity of David's sin horrifies him. David knows sin is where he lives. 
Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. David knows that sin is woven through his being. It did not begin with his lust for Bathsheba. His sin began in his mother's womb before his first breath. Only the cross would reveal the terrible cost God was willing to pay to cleanse David from his sin. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. The cross was the hyssop. The blood of Jesus was the cleansing flood. Alistair Begg tells us the gospel message is not, you are the man. The gospel message is, the Lord has also put away your sin. God covers. Romans 8, 32 to 34. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. David knows God. He knows his compassion. Think of all the Psalms that we have studied that David wrote. Think of God's care for him in battle with Saul in the wilderness. David knows the promises that God has made. Promises of a forever kingdom. Covenant promises of a descendant, a son of David, who will come and rule for eternity. Like Abraham, David believes Yahweh. David has faith. He doesn't know exactly how God will pay the penalty for his sins. But he believes that God will surely do it. Let's circle back. Because I've skipped a part. A pretty important part. What about verse 10? Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house. If David is forgiven, washed clean, why then does the Lord speak of raising up evil, a sword within David's own house? Why will David's wives be given to his neighbor for all Israel to see? And why must his child die? The sad truth is that forgiven sins still have consequences. The Old Testament scholar Alec Matir describes an image that helps to clarify this reality that we all face. He says, repentance is like fetching back a stone one has just thrown into a pool. The stone can be retrieved, but the ripples go on spreading. 
God graciously retrieved this stone for David. Sin is forgiven. His relationship with the Lord is restored. His life is spared. The kingdom remains his. But the ripples continue to spread and spread. The impact of David's complacency The impact of David's complacency and self-gratifying sin reverberate in his family, in his kingdom. Yahweh forgave David's sin, but will not shield him from every consequence. But what grace to know that our tender and merciful father is sovereign over every consequence working all things according to our good in mysterious ways that we can't imagine. Second Samuel twelve, fifteen to thirty one Restoration. Then Nathan went to his house, and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. Verses 15 to 25 paint a clear picture of a man humbled by guilt, heartbroken for his child. Deep into grief he falls, bringing the only sacrifice that God desires. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. For seven days, David pleads with the Lord. His servants are baffled and then terrified by his intensity as the days pass. He lays on the ground in his house, refusing to get up, fasting, passionately praying and interceding for his child. David's prayers are answered, but not as he hoped. When the child dies, the servants are afraid. David might become suicidal. They begin to whisper in the next room, what shall we do? If he's that upset while the boy was sick, what will he do now the child has died? David is alert. He knows something's up and he inquires. And when he hears the news, David gets up, takes a bath, puts on clean clothes and sets off for the tabernacle to worship and beg for nothing less than a miracle. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing heart. This turning point in Psalm 51 lifts us from the despair of self-knowledge to the miracle of salvation. Salvation, a miracle for the least and the greatest of sinners. From the Apostle Paul to John Newton to King David. What a certainty to know that in Jesus, my sins are covered. Jesus is my holiness. Regardless of my sin, like David, I can turn to the God of my salvation, repent, and sing his praise. 
My thirst is satisfied. My soul is free. He returns home and David's servants ask about his bizarre behavior. He responds from an intimate understanding of God's nature. Grace is not a heady doctrine. In past grace, David has seen God act out of compassion over and over again. And so he had hoped While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live, but now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Verses 22 and 23. David's life is spared But it is as if this tiny son of David died in his place, foreshadowing God's ultimate rescue in Jesus. A severe mercy. Back to the discipline that Nathan described, a sword and evil for all Israel to see. And one final question. Will the coming consequences of David's sin be an example of what C.S. Lewis calls a severe mercy? Let me explain what I mean. In First Samuel, we all watched as David was driven to God again and again by Saul's murderous jealousy. Affliction made him faithful, desperate for Yahweh. In 2 Samuel, David was the unrivaled king of Israel. God prospered him in every way. And when David was not desperate for God, he was more vulnerable to self-destructive depravity. Civil war, death, and evil will be the direct result of David's self-indulgence and blind complacency as husband, father, and king. Will the consequences of that sin be a severe mercy that finally drives David to the living God? We shall see in the coming weeks. Verses 24 to 25 give us a glimpse of restoration birthdays. For the first time, Bathsheba is named and called David's wife rather than Uriah's a sign of God's forgiveness. First Chronicles 3, 5 suggests that Solomon is the fourth son of David and Bathsheba, so the writer of 2 Samuel may have skipped ahead in order to show another sign of God's mercy in this important child. Nathan calls him Jedediah, beloved of the Lord, a hint at Solomon's future kingship. God's promises stand firm, more grace. Consequences that flowed from David's sin also led to the birth of Solomon. And from Solomon to Jesus, from the evil of David's actions, God created a global flood of restoration. A few words on the final section of this chapter, verses 26 to 31. The battle for the Ammonite city continues like a frame until the end of chapter 12. 
All this time, Joab led the fight at Rabah, while in technicolor, the battle for the soul of David rages in Jerusalem. Finally, Joab manages to capture the city's source of water spoken of in verse 27. And without water, soon the entire city will fall. So Joab sends a message quickly to the king. Come quickly or the city will be called by my name, not yours. David comes and captures the city, the spoil, the huge bejeweled crown, and the Ammonites are set to work as forced labor. David returns to Jerusalem. In Romans 4, 7 through 8, Paul uses David as an example of the Lord's mercy and quotes from Psalm 32. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Gone, never to be brought up again. This is not human justice. This is scandalous grace. The deepest of all eternal stories. All for love's sake. It is on Jesus that David's blood-guilty sins fell. On the broken body of Jesus on the cross. Because of him, our repentant hearts can come to the Father. Because of Jesus, we lift our voices in praise to the glory of God. With love wise ocean and deep as the sea. Jesus invites, come to me. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, work in us as we study and pray together. Teach us truth in the inward being and wisdom in the secret heart. Like David, our hearts are prone to wander. As you sanctify us for your kingdom, open us. Work out and work in the lessons we learn from David's sin and repentance. Heavenly Father, you are Lord, infinitely holy, King of the universe, boundless in steadfast love and tender mercy. Make us desperate for you. Jesus, give us faith to follow you in this life and eagerly await your coming again, for it is only by your grace that everlasting love and life are found. In the name of Jesus. Amen.